Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. We return this morning to our study in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at the first six verses today. Here Paul now shifts in his writing, in his theme. He's still under the theme of joy, but now he's about to get into some dangers. There's some elements that we always have to watch out for, and so he takes up the pen, and he writes to the church in Philippi. He's writing from prison, and he's warning them about the dangers of counterfeit Christianity. Dangers of the counterfeit. How many have worked in the banking industry? You've ever been a teller at a bank? Raise your hand. All right? A few of you. How many have ever handed money to somebody behind the counter and they take the pen and they do the check to make sure that you're not being handed a counterfeit $20 bill? Well, this morning, I had some of our kids help us, all right? So they were given the example of a $20 bill and this morning, your children... Uh, helped me produce counterfeit money, all right? Counterfeit money. And so here we have some $20 bills. They'll be available afterwards, $20 here. All right, $20, there it is. <laughs> I'm not sure which president that is, but uh, it's, uh, that's, uh, you just have to make sense of that. Just hand it to the person. And say, Trust me, it's $20, you know? Now here, we, we've got a little more, we've got some numbers on this one. We got, you know, all these different counterfeit $20 bills. Don't you wish if you were in the banking industry, it'd be that easy to tell the difference? Yeah, I'd like to pay for my gas. Uh, there you go. You don't need a pen for this. You can just look at this at the eye and say, that is not $20. But that's the whole point. When someone is making counterfeit money, they intend to make it, they endeavor to make it so close that you can't by the human eye tell the difference. And so you have to look up and none of the children put threads inside the paper that they made on the special paper that, that money is, is printed on. They were simply giving, given copier paper, do your best. When Paul is writing, of course, for a pastor, it would be wonderful if somebody who is a false teacher, has false teaching, would just come with this kind of a disclaimer on them. I'm here, and I'm going to give you some words today from my own understanding, and you would say, I'm not listening. That's counterfeit. It's not genuine. But there are people all over the media today, all over social media that are just, they have followers upon followers, they have books upon books, podcasts upon podcasts, and they mix in truth with error. And if you're not discerning, say, I don't know. It said 20 on it. <laughs> he said he was a Christian, and look at all the people in that auditorium that are listening to him. And with them, they take countless souls to hell. My professor in college, who is now in heaven, he had the one line that he would make us repeat over and over. What does the Bible say? Oh, but in our day, right now, there's a pastor who is apologizing from his pulpit and through his thousands of members, I'm sorry, and we need to be sorry as Christians for ever telling people, what does the Bible say? Let's just put our faith in the resurrected Jesus. Okay, excuse me, who here was at the tomb that morning? How do we find out about these things if it isn't, well, book, chapter, and verse? What does the Bible say? So... Those teachers will come and go. They lived and they died in Paul's day, and they will live and they will die in our day, and they will stand before, and I will stand before, and you will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's given us his word. 
So Paul, in chapter 2 of Philippians, he went, he took us to the mountaintop of Jesus, the example of Jesus. And then he moved down through his example to Timothy's example to Epaphroditus. So he's zeroing in to the Philippians. And today, and in these last two chapters, he's going to land it at home. Application. All of these dangers constantly coming up against the church of Jesus Christ. So loved ones, I'll say it again. Beware, beware, beware of the counterfeit. The title of the message today, Artificial Spirituality. Let me tell you something. Artificial spirituality is much more deadly and dangerous and destructive than artificial intelligence. Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. Here's his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is the word of the Lord, and that's where we'll stop, and we'll, Lord willing, we'll pick up next week from this point. There are three constant responsibilities for believers. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are a genuine believer, and whenever I say that, loved ones, if you're here and you, have, you are simply, you're searching out, you're, you're looking then there's an, always an invitation. There's never a, this isn't for you. This is only for a certain special people. No, the only thing good about us is that we've been forgiven and that Christ lives and dwells in us. Okay, so there's not an exclusion that there's no hope for you. There is all hope for you, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, then there are three responsibilities that are never going away. These were all present when Paul wrote to the Philippians 2,000 years ago, and they are, have been down through the centuries. They will be for our children and grandchildren. Three constant responsibilities, and the first one is, number one, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I mentioned it already that Paul is writing from prison. And the apostle chose joy in the face of all trials and opposition, and he actually expected believers to follow his example. Follow me as I follow Christ. He loved the church. He wanted God's very best for them. So for him to write to them and remind them of the blessings and of the dangers, it was a privilege to him. It wasn't a burden to him. So now we're going to unpack his application of this truth. He's already taught them in person. He's written to them already even in this letter. He uh, says, finally. All right, so the uh, joke is, what does it say when a pastor says, in conclusion? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. All right, it doesn't mean anything. There's still probably a lot more to come. Here we are. There's 40% more of this letter still. In, and he says, now finally, in conclusion... All right? But that's not, that's our English word, but that's not actually what he's saying. Even a better translation of this is what he's writing is now then. Okay, because of all, chapter one, chapter two, now then. Let me make application to this. Finally, my brothers, and there he's writing to Christian brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So when he has to deal with error, okay, so when there's a confrontation that has to happen, that's not my favorite thing to do. 
that troubles me. It concerns me. When I have to address or we have to talk to somebody or when somebody has to address me, and that's, that's troublesome. And Paul says, I'm not afraid of this. This is no trouble for me. This is actually good for you. He reminds them, the church, of the truth of God. This is the primary responsibility of every shepherd, every pastor, every elder in Christ's church. It's the responsibility of every parent as we rear our children. And while I've already said there are so many false teachers, ministry, gospel ministry, is very similar to parenting or even some of you have served as teachers. Don't you wish you could have come in your class and said, okay, everybody, pay attention. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, H, H. There we go, all the way to Z. Now you know the alphabet. Next subject, please. Right? No, it, it was A, B, C, D. It's a repetition, repetition, repetition. And it would be seared in the mind so that it could come back without difficulty and we remember. Even in our day, there's popular movies, miniseries, miniseries that are on, and you'll see so much that is true, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, 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 where'd that come from? I don't remember the book, chapter, and verse on that. Where'd that come from? So we always have to be discerning. Paul says this in Romans. He wrote to them, 1515, he said, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So Paul wrote to the Romans. This is something he did all the time. To the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4.17, he said, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Why did you send Timothy, Paul? To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Everywhere that Paul went, he taught and reminded and taught and reminded and wrote them letters, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received in which you stand. I'm going to remind you about that. Can, can I just say on that scripture, so when anybody steps up into a medium, a pulpit, online, TV, wherever you're watching them, a broadcast, and they emphasize, I have a word from God. Immediately, what are they trying to do? I'm next level. You're here, and I'm up here, and you need to listen to me because I have a word. You don't have a word from God. I have a word from God. We all have a word from God. It's right here. Whenever someone goes beyond that, they're trying to interpose themselves between, you need me to be, call me teacher. And Jesus said, don't call anybody your father. Don't call anybody your teacher. You have one. And there are plenty who disregard that. 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, Paul says, I remind you to fan. Now he's writing to Timothy. The guy he sent to other people to remind. He's reminding Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. Hey, Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them, remind the church of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers, just controversy. This is going to happen in small groups, and it just ruins the hearers when, when words get keyed in. And Titus 3.1, to a different younger preacher, remind them, there he is on the island of Crete, remind them, Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, why would he have to do that? Because in every age, there will be people tempted to say, God, you don't know, you don't know what I know. You put the wrong rulers in place over me. And I will rebel against them, but I'll slap something spiritual on it, and I'll be okay. And so, Titus, you're going to have to man up and remind them to line up under rulers and authorities in every way, except what is disobedience to God. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. That's a Christian witness. That's a Christian testimony. 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. Therefore, Peter says, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them 
and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of, what's the word? Reminder. I'm going to remind you. And I'm going to stir you up and remind you and remind you. 2 Peter 3.1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I don't want you to forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. I'm going to remind you, remind you. It's like he's writing to men here. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) How many times Ginger has said, you know, I told you that. Yeah, I know, but you didn't remind and remind and remind and remind and remind me about that. Jude, half-brother of Jesus, another writer. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, what did he do to those chosen people when they rebelled against him and disobeyed his word? He destroyed them because they did not believe. They didn't take the word of God to heart and practice it. Loved ones, here we are reminded, rejoice in the Lord. And this command is not optional. This command from the Lord by his spirit through the apostle to the church in Philippi, it was written to them, but it's for us. This is an imperative. This isn't a request. It's a command. He would write to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. It's in the active voice. So it means in every situation, in every season, whoever is in that political office or wherever we live, what county, all these things that we are to be proactive in rejoicing. We are to take the lead in every situation. Where we work, where we live, the relationships that we're in, we're to take the initiative to rejoice and not wait for the things to change and then rejoice. No. I wonder how you feel about that command that you just wrote down. It's a command. Does that just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Like, don't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are to tell me what to do? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what's happened in my life. No, I I don't. But the Lord does. And when Paul from prison writes, rejoice in the Lord, there was nobody in the Philippian church that could say, yeah, but Paul, hmm, never mind. Never mind. So we... We look for ways to rejoice. And what is one of the greatest ways that we can rejoice in every situation? It's to simply give thanks. So it's not working up joy. It's taking inventory in every situation and turning our eyes upon the Lord and how good he is and how faithful he has been and thank him. And thankfulness and praise can change the, the tune of our heart. Joy is the theme of this letter. And nothing will steal our joy like disobedience. Nothing will steal our joy like sin and teaching that blesses sin and disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we live contrary to God and his word, why would we expect to be joyful? There's no joy found there. Paul learned the secret of the Christian's joy. It's not connected to our circumstances. So when we think about happiness, that word is closely connected to what happens or you're fortunate, good fortune, uh, the idea that luck or certain things in our, our happiness, good times, good health, that all comes and go. It comes and it goes, but our joy in Christ, that remains, that abides. So Christians are not, Paul is not saying that we're to be you know, just giddy or glib in dark and difficult situations. When someone is grieving the loss of a loved one, we don't show up, and, and, and silliness is not what, what he has in mind here. No, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. But the joy is abiding. The joy that we have in Christ, it cannot be taken from us. We can be truly broken. We can be deeply sad and grieving and completely filled with the joy of Christ. Why? 
because we know that our heavenly father is good and he's sovereign and he's working all things together for our good and for his glory. We know that and so we have to remind ourselves of that because I don't know about you, but I can forget that easily. John MacArthur says it this way helpfully. He says, the joy of which Paul writes is not the same as happiness. The feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events. In fact, joy persists in the face of weakness, suffering, pain, and yes, joy persists even in death. The joy of the Lord remains. John Calvin said it this way 500 years ago. He said, it is a rare excellence when Satan endeavors to exasperate us by means of the bitterness of the cross. Didn't Isaac bring that to bear on us last week? And Satan would exasperate us. I became a Christian and I've had people tell me and it's like the whole bottom of my life fell out. It just all fell apart. And Satan, who endeavors to exasperate us by means of the bitterness of the cross, so as to make God's name unpleasant, to take such satisfaction in the simple tasting of God's grace that, listen to this now, all annoyances, sorrows, anxieties, and griefs are sweetened. They're not removed from us. They're not taken from us. But when we remind ourselves of the cross and of the tasting of God's grace, then all of those things that are a part of our daily lives, they're in here and they're external as well. And when I glory in the cross, they're sweetened. There's a shift in perspective. So this is a command, loved ones. It's not optional. This pursuit, it must be continual. There's an act of obedience here that Paul has in mind. He wrote it in the present tense. I would say it's, it's not hard for me to rejoice in spurts, you know, like a sprinter. I can, I can sprint for a few steps, run at a good pace for a mile or two, we're talking something different there. I need to grow in this area. It's not just rejoicing when the sun peaks out for 10 minutes in Michigan. It's on the days that are rainy and cold and hail and ice and snow. And it's, in, it's in every season. So we're not those who wait for the weather to change and then I can rejoice. Or, you know, as soon as the next election, then maybe I can rejoice after that. Or maybe the economy will change. Yeah, it probably will. Just not sure if you are ready for how it's going to change. But when it gets better, then I can rejoice. My portfolio is stronger. Then I'll rejoice. When my health, you know, takes a turn for the better, then I can rejoice. Then, no, he says, no, rejoice. This is present tense that we, by the grace of God, will choose joy today, right now. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll rejoice today and tomorrow and every day that the Lord gives to us. But that will not happen by chance. It won't happen with leftover, oh, I'm going to get around to rejoicing. It has to be set front and center and held there. When we remember who Jesus is, when we think about, when we're reminded of all that he has done for us, that's chapter two of Philippians, then how can we not rejoice? How can we not be filled with joy and gratitude? So memorize Philippians 2, meditate on Philippians 2, and let that just so permeate your heart, your mind, your thoughts. This command is not optional. This pursuit must be continual, and this attitude, Paul says here, is universal. It's for every believer. He writes in the second person plural. It's not for some elite class of Christians. You know, they're just this special group of people. They're super spiritual, and I'm just not that, so here I am just dragging through life. No, no. Paul writes to everybody in that church. It's plural. It's inclusive of everyone. This isn't just for him. It's not just for the church leaders. It's for every follower of Christ. 
that we're called, we're invited, we're commanded to rejoice. We've been given a joy that transcends our circumstances. And you and I, we haven't seen with our eyes, our physical eyes, the resurrected Savior. But we've been given a joy, and Peter writes about this, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, and he says to others that they didn't travel with him, they didn't meet him. He says, though you have not seen him, we could be included in that, you love him. How many of you love Jesus and you haven't seen him? I love him, and I haven't seen him with my physical eyes. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's struggling to even, how do I describe this joy? It's inexpressible, it's, it's glorious. And what is this joy? Verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thinking about what Christ has done for us. Obtaining, it's verse nine, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is what would shift our disposition when gas prices go up. Oh yeah, this isn't my final planet. This isn't my final dwelling place. We're just camping out here. It's, we're not intended to live in tents. But we dwell as just travelers. We have a home in heaven. So rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, Paul is right and he says, you need to beware, you need to watch out. Beware of religious imposters. Listen to me, child of God. They're out there. You need to be on the lookout. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the f flesh. Paul is, warning, warning, beware. He loved the beware of dog sign. And then some little, you know, dog comes running in, and you're like, burp, burp, burp. they're about, you know, your ankle height. But do you know if that's the only dog the sign is warning you about? See, that's the question. Suddenly you hear a much deeper resonating, and you're like, aha. Ah, okay. This little guy was just fast. The other one is fierce. Beware. Watch out. Now, Paul, he writes and he says, watch out for dogs. Now, I don't know what imagery comes up. All you animal lovers, all right? And like, oh, watch out for dogs. I love dogs, not this kind of dog. Okay. These are, these are false teachers. They peddle a false gospel. So Paul's not talking about the cute little pet, you know, that runs around your house and demands all of your time and attention. No, dogs in the first century, they would roam in packs and they would eat anything that they came across. When I visited India and when I've been in Africa, it's very wise to have a stick with you because you never know when a rabid dog in a pack is coming at you and you don't know what that disease that dog has. So you have to shift your mind I'm in a different location, and there's danger that I'm not, I'm not used to. I, I, I went to a chaplain training, and there was a retired law enforcement individual that came from the West, and he was uh, in, just giving instruction to different police officers. And he said, you know, now I live out in Arizona. He said, I can tell when people are transplants. They come in, the touristers. He said, they walk out through the Grand Canyon, and they're just looking this way and looking that way. He says, that's not how, if you're from there, that's not, how, that's not how you walk the trails. If you're from there, you walk the trails like this with your eyes, and you're scanning because you know sooner or later there's coming a, a diamondback across that trail. And then you're not going to really be too impressed at the Grand Canyon if you step in the wrong place and that thing says, hello, welcome. You're, you're always on alert. And he was talking to officers who always have their antennas up. They're always alert. And that takes a toll on their life and on their loved ones because in every situation, they're scanning, they're watching for danger, they're looking for danger. They can never let their guard down and they do that for others. That's what Paul is writing about. He uses a term that is graphic. It's a violent term. He wants to shock the readers. He's saying these false teachers, 
The early church faced them often. They tried to blend Judaism, the old way, Old Testament systems and feasts and diets, all that, and just bring it together and merge it together with Christianity. The Judaizers were wreaking havoc in the Galatian church. They were dealt with at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They were claiming that trusting in Christ alone was not good enough for salvation. Okay, so that's what they were dealing with. It's not just good enough that you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus. Have you been and fill in the blank? Do you eat? Is it this day and that feast and all of these other questions? So they were claiming that one must become like the Jewish people in physical acts, dietary restrictions, and in keeping the Sabbath. Put simply, they were blending grace with works for salvation, and that is legalism. Legalism is a false attempt at self-atonement, which leads to either pride or despair. I am amazing. I'm better than everybody. I am not like, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. The focus is, I must save myself. I must atone for my sin. So Paul did not hold back. When he addressed the church in Galatia, he didn't have anything good to say to them because he taught them all of this. And it's, it's threatening here in Philippi, but it doesn't have a foothold in Philippi. When he writes to the Galatians and in come these false teachers and, and Paul says like, you know, who hindered you? You were running well. Who hindered you? You were off to a good start. And now I hear of what you're, you're involved in and what you're believing and practicing. And what happened to you? Galatians 5.12, Paul says very graphically, I wish those who unsettle you, these false teachers, would emasculate themselves, would cut themselves off, want to be done with them. You see, loved ones, salvation is either a divine accomplishment or human achievement. A divine accomplishment or human achievement. God comes down to us and rescues us, or we, we work ourselves to God. It's, it's one or the other. These are the two systems of belief in the entire world. We either believe that God saves us completely or that we save ourselves. It's grace versus works. And you could put every religion into one category or the other. And only true Christianity believes that we can't save ourselves. God, in his mercy, in Christ, saved me. Period. It wasn't a 95-5 deal. It was 100-0. The only thing I brought to the table was sin and shame and guilt. And he took it. And that was on Christ. And he gave me his righteousness and he clothed me in his righteousness so that when the Father looks on me, he sees me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the difference. Paul writes to Titus, Titus 3 verse 4, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you catch that? God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, see, they're on the same level, just like Revelation 4 and 5, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's where we're going, and that's what we have now. That's what we've been given. That will cause us to rejoice in every season. So Paul is writing, he says, watch out for these dogs, these false teachers. They're dangerous, they're deadly, and they come in looking so nice and popular and great suits and cars and planes and houses, but watch out for them. And then he says, watch out for those who do evil. You see, their belief and their behavior go hand in hand. Watch out for those who do evil. You know, I realize everyone here, we're all, we're all sinners. We sin. Yet Christians have been forgiven. So we're no longer characterized by a lifestyle of sinfulness. Oh, but these dogs that Paul is writing about, they feed on the trash of false doctrine and they spread their doubt of Scripture. 
They are very happy to give a disregard for God's plan for purity and human sexuality. They have a disdain for the gospel. They dismiss the word of God wherever they go. So Paul described these kind of people who are polluted to Titus. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're polluted. They're perverted. So they look at everything through the lens of what do I believe? What do I feel? What do I want? That's their own kingdom. But Isaiah, there's this warning that's desperately needed today. Isaiah 5.20, there's a pronouncement. When, when that word woe, it's, it's death. All right, it's a curse. It's a warning. Woe to those who call evil what? Good. And good, evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, the follower of Christ, their testimony is not, yeah, I have Jesus in my life and I still continue in sin. No. This is, I used to. I used to live in sin. I, I was known for habitual patterns of self-righteousness and sin. But that's past tense. Titus 3, Paul says, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, verse 2, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect, oh boy, perfect courtesy toward all people. Yeah, even the slow person at the restaurant, the difficult neighbor, Perfect courtesy. You thought Isaac was getting us last week. Paul's just, he's just going for it here. But listen, what's going to make us constantly remember when we just get upset with people, we're frustrated with people, they let us down, they're so annoying, they're so difficult? Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Our lives were characterized by hate. We hated everybody else we hated one another, and there's this hate that is boiling over inside, this anger, this rage. Somebody needs to fix this. Hated by others and hating one another. We were once those people. That's who we were. Well, what happened? Our lives and our desires have been radically changed, and we have been transformed from the inside out. But those who blend works with salvation, they introduce a false, false gospel and it cannot save. So that's why Paul is saying, beware, watch out, they're evil workers. And so people who come with a false gospel, they mix these things together. They say, oh, you, yes, Jesus is great, but have you been baptized? You have to be baptized in order to be good with God, saved. You got to be baptized. Have you been baptized? Oh, have you, are, are you a church member? And they equate church membership to salvation. No. Uh, giving, how much do you give? And your giving shows whether you are true. No, it doesn't. Well, what do you eat and what do you stay away from? What are your dietary restrictions? You take care of these things or those things? Or, no. And they just add to it. Your dress style, your hairstyle, all of these things. Salvation is good. Jesus is good. But there's more. That's a false gospel. Christ alone saves us. When we belong to him, then all of the areas of obedience, those become our desires because we belong to him, not to try and gain a relationship with him. 
So then Paul says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out. These three warnings here. Once again, Paul is using language, terminology that should be shocking and appalling to the readers. And I would say until about five years ago, that would be very shocking to us. Oh, but now? This is, this is, on, on, this is just kept alive by media and politicians. This isn't shocking anymore. It's shocking if you say, um, you shouldn't go into a surgery that reassigns your gender. Only God can do this. Oh, that's shocking now. Paul is writing. He's warning his readers. When someone loses a body part through amputation or surgery, it's tragic generally. Their life is forever changed. A removal of a body part causes grief because we're reminded of our devastation that sin is brought upon the human race. So usually, amputation has been reserved for life-saving measures to stop infection from spreading or disease from spreading. There's a disability, there's something wrong, and we have to take drastic measures to save your life. I've been in the rooms when people are told this information. Church members, we're going to have to take your foot. We're going to have to take some of your leg. I've been with loved ones dying, and they had legs amputated to try to keep them alive. And surrounding them is all family and physicians who love them and care for them. They're doing everything that they can to help them. Works are impotent to save. So when Paul is talking about circumcision, which technically is, you know, the male procreative organ, and the Jewish people given a sign of a covenant, you're going to be different, you're going to stand out. It's a covenant sign. And here the people are in the New Testament say, you've got to take that Old Testament thing, and Gentiles, you've got to become like Jewish people. But that never saved anyone. That doesn't cut deep enough to cut out the sin and the desires that are evil in our hearts. Now, historically, powerful kings, they would do this. They would have their palace guards emasculated so that eunuchs could protect the king's wives, the the concubines, the harem, and they had no ability to mess up, to get involved, to sleep with one of their wives, one of their women, and mess up the lineage and have a servant seed passed on into royal heritage. So they would show, you're my property, and they would emasculate them. Now I can use your strength, and you can guard all of my women, but you can't have any of my women, is what a king would say. You have no ability to get any of my women pregnant. It would have been almost unthinkable for anyone to choose this limitation on their own. For the rest of my life, I will not be able to have someone coming after me. But welcome to the 2023 and the LGBTQ plus movement. You see, it's a powerful statement over someone to take away what God has given them, their right, their ability to procreate. We have to understand as the church what is going on. You can jot down a note, Genesis 34. In the Old Testament, we read of a most unusual account. Genesis 34, one of Jacob's daughters, her name was Dinah. She had been seized and raped by Hamor the Hivite. He was the prince of the land. So here you have somebody who is very powerful. He sees a beautiful woman. He says, I'm the prince. I'll sleep with her. 
The Bible says in 34.5 that Jacob held his peace. Okay, so this, guys, this tells us something, that he failed to protect and he failed to defend the honor of his daughter. So the brothers, her brothers, they were getting angry in their heart. Their dad wasn't doing anything about it. And so they took the matter into their own hands. They made a plan. Their plan was, sure, you want to marry within our people? Then here's what you have to do. Hamor, get all you and your fellas and we'll circumcise you. And then we'll, then we'll, we'll talk. We'll be able to have you guys marry our ladies. And, we'll. and so Hamor came back and said, guys, meeting, town meeting, everybody. There's fresh meat out there. There's women. Here's what we have to do. We all have to be circumcised. And they actually submitted to it. Okay. The Bible says in verse 25, on the third day after their surgery, all the men were sore. Simeon and Levi showed up. You ready, Simeon? Yeah, you ready, Levi? Pull out the sword. Morning. (laughs) Through the whole town, didn't leave a man alive. There wasn't a man that could fight. Don't you wonder if they were thinking, they're never going to agree to this. They're never, never going to, this isn't going to happen. And they did. And that town was leveled. They probably saw, they were probably thinking, these fellows have lost their mind, but okay. Now, in the first century, when the Judaizers taught that Gentile men needed to be circumcised, they were, again, wrongly placing the Old Testament covenant sign that had been fulfilled in Jesus upon others, upon Gentiles. They tried to pressure Paul to have Titus, a Gentile, circumcised to meet their standards, and Paul didn't back down for a second. No way. Timothy, you say? Timothy was circumcised. Yes, he was, but that's because his father was a Gentile, his mother. His mother was a Jew. So in honor and in deference to not show that he was against the Jewish people, Paul said, Timothy, you need to be circumcised. Galatians 2 and verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, Paul says, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So let me make an application here. A physical surgery, a bodily surgery cannot heal the broken heart, soul, mind, and life. It's actually a setup for despair upon despair upon despair, which why, this is why there is an increasing in a very high suicide rate among those who are going through these surgeries because it didn't solve the brokenness. As Christians, we're not saying there's not brokenness. There's not something wrong. We're simply saying a surgery cannot solve it. That's what Paul is saying. You cannot go through circumcision and now you're right with God. A surgery, a physical act, it will not solve the problem of our heart. The notion, the invention that God's design is not the best for you is one of many false hopes that is being offered and pressed upon children and confused individuals of our generation. But the church will lovingly stand for the truth. And although Isaac said we don't know anything about persecution, I would add yet. Because anyone who takes the stance of Scripture that is the most loving, everything is coming in line to say you can't say that or we'll call you a bigot, we'll call you any fill-in-the-blank. But what does God say? What does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? The true church will stand lovingly and boldly against the evils of abortion, against every assault upon God's institution of marriage. That's immorality. That's sex outside of marriage. That's the entire LGBTQ plus agenda. Upon every attack against the family, listen, that's adultery. That is pornography. That is divorce. The church will say, we realize it's everywhere in our society. There's not, these people are the really bad people. No, all of this was in all of us until we came to faith in Christ. 
And we can still struggle and wrestle with with these temptations. But by God's grace, we will stand lovingly and firmly upon the truth of God's word. Why? That's the only place where hope is found. It's in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Our ultimate healing is found in Christ alone. So, Let me encourage you because I know in our congregation there are those and you have family members that are wrestling and working through some of these issues that I've just mentioned. A Strange New World, a book by Carl R. Truman. How did we get where we are right now? How are we here? What is going on that has so changed our thinking? Strange New World, read this this week. I've had that book for a long time and I... I, this, this week was a week that I had to digest it, take it in. Carl Truman is the author. I would encourage you. And that is a shorter treatment of a, of a wider treatment because this is a very complex issue. But we as believers, we must, let number three, hold fast to the gospel. We must hold fast to the gospel. And so Paul says the true circumcision, these are those who are genuine believers. They're followers. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we have to hold fast. Though it be unpopular, is it true? Paul says this, he says, for we are the circumcision. Okay, well, who? Those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, pay attention. I'm going to shut you down. My list, better than anybody's list. Letter A, who are true believers? Genuine believers, we serve God by his spirit. And he he uses that word there, we worship, okay? That's not just, you know, singing, It's not just, that's serving. It's the word for serving. We serve by the spirit of God. It's a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Before we came to faith in Christ, we worshiped, we served self, sin, ultimately Satan. All of those are really bad and destructive, but through the grace of the Lord and the power of his Holy Spirit, Christians, we have been forgiven. We've been made alive in Christ. So Paul describes the believer as we are the true circumcision because our hearts have been pierced by the living word of God. Something has happened, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what divine surgery does. It gets all the way to the heart. Religion can't do that. First Peter 1.21, since, Peter writes, since you have been born again, okay? So we're thinking of birth. We're talking about the male sexual organ here that you can give life and we're all here because we have a father and we had a mother. But who here can produce spiritual life? I couldn't do that. I have three daughters, but I couldn't produce spiritual new birth in them. God has to do that. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, your father, but of imperishable, your father in heaven. How does that happen? Through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. It's through the word of God. We're made alive by the spirit of God for the purpose of serving Christ, serving his church and the world around us. This is what new life is. This is what it is to be born from above, to be born again. So we serve God by his spirit and we glory in Christ Jesus alone. We have nothing to boast in of our own glory, of what I've done or I've done this or I've done that or I haven't done this and I haven't done that. No, no. We have one boast. We have one to brag on, and it's Jesus, to make much of him. And we long for his will to be done and for his kingdom to come. So we invest our lives for the honor and glory of Jesus alone. And we will pray continually what Isaac led us to last week. Lord, use me. Lord, use me. Lord, use me. Anybody still hearing him? You sound so miserable. (laughs) Ouch. Please use me. 
We place, letter C, no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because salvation is all by God's unmerited favor. It's by his grace. It's not by our good works. So the question I have for you this morning, are you trying harder or are you trusting? Are you trying harder or are you trusting in Christ Jesus alone? When we are trusting in Christ Jesus alone, then we're led to treasure him above everything else, above everyone else, Christ over all. So Paul is about to illustrate through his own little resume here of all these things that are impotent to save. That self-righteousness is actually a false hope. It's a false confidence because it's trusting in our, and he goes through the list. Okay, talk about religious rituals. Well, Paul says, I've got you beat on this one. I was circumcised, but not just circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Ooh, not the seventh, not the ninth. My parents had me there on day eight. I mean, we were cross the T and dot the I. And you know what? That didn't make him right with God. So we have rituals like baptism, communion, church membership. You know, people have dietary restrictions, all these different things. Those cannot make you right with God. Oh, I went to camp. I went to Christian school. I went to a Christian college. That doesn't make you right with God. Let's talk about ethnicity. Paul said, you know, who I, I was part of the people of Israel. That's who I was. Beloved ones, your color of skin or your ancestry does not mean you're preferred or despised by God. He doesn't love or dislike based on the color of your skin or your heritage. He had to teach Samuel that lesson that man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. It's not the color of your skin, but the content of your heart, the character of your heart. Once stated and has been drastically forgotten in the day that we live and constantly race, race, race. You realize we're all one race. We all share Adam as our father. We just have different pigmentation in our skin. So where does it come from to get people against each other? It does not come from heaven. It comes from hell. Whenever you think your race is more important than any, your, not your race, but your color or your background is less, more, that, that's where we're, we're not looking fully at Christ. Then he says, talk about your position, your rank, your standing. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Were you? Oh, I was. I came from a kingly line. Only problem was that king was disqualified. Saul. They were mighty, but this king was disqualified and replaced by, by the shepherd king from the tribe of Judah. So how long you've been a member of a church or how much you do or how much you give, it doesn't make you right with God. My dad was a pastor. Yeah, it didn't make me right with God. Traditions. Number four there. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Best of the best, sir. That's who I was. His parents raised him according to the traditions of the Hebrew people. He was in the best schools, kept all the feasts, holy days, traditions. But none of the keeping of all those traditions cleansed him from one sin or made him right with God. Raised in church, VBS, camp, all of that is not the same thing as you have been made right with God through a saving relationship of Jesus Christ. Rule keeping, this one, this one's my specialty right here. Number five, this is, this is my guy right here. As to the law of Pharisee, Pharisees studied the Old Testament. They knew their Bibles. They memorized scripture. They quoted scripture. And Jesus said, you search the scriptures and you think in them you, you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me and you're not willing to come to me. You know the Bible inside and out, Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, and yet their hearts are far from God. And Jesus said, you are like sepulchers. You're like graves. Outside, all clean. In, inwardly, you're filled with dead men's bones. You, you dirty cups. Outside, you're clean, and you look inside, and you're, that was in the bottom of the cup. John the Baptist, you brood of viper, vipers, who warned you? And then number six, this zeal for God. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And we learn in Acts, Paul was so devoted to his religion and his opinion that he would gladly commit murder. He would see to the mutila mutilation of Stephen's flesh by having him stoned to death. He prided himself in his sincerity and his refusal to compromise. 
But until he was converted, his view of Jesus was deficient. He was zealous and he was sincere, but he was completely lost. Does that describe you before you came to know Christ? And you were in church and you were in the things and all, doing all the things and went through the school, went through all the different stages and you didn't know Christ. Or maybe that's even you here today. Paul was really good when he was Saul, telling everybody where they're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then number seven, obedience to the law. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He was morally better than everybody else in his not-so-humble opinion. But in all reality, this guy was delusional. To the human eye, to everybody else, you know, gathering in church or where he met in the synagogue, like, oh, if I could only be like Saul of Tarsus. That guy is so together. He just, he knew that and he knew this and he knew the other thing. Oh, he always, eighth day, circumcised the eighth day. My parents thinks a lot. Seven, day seven. And look, this guy, this guy, humanly, he looked like the best of the best. But God sees us differently. And until he met Christ, even most people can say, well, I've never killed anybody. Saul couldn't even say that. Like, I held their coats while they stoned him to death. And he died forgiving me in the name of Jesus Christ. We cannot be saved by our own attempts, but must, loved ones, admit our sin. We have to admit our failure to be holy and perfect. We must believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he's our only hope of salvation and confess him, Jesus Christ, as the Lord of our lives. So let me just bring this right down to a head. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and own him as your king? That's what Paul writes to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And once we are saved, then there's a reason for our salvation, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but if he is our king and our Lord and our savior, we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All loved ones, there is no lasting joy outside the kingdom of God. You can look for the real thing in all, every place, and you will not find it until you come fully to Christ Jesus. So what I, I, I would do this morning is encourage anybody who's here and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, surrender to him, bow your life to the king today, right now. And then rejoice in the Lord always. Beware of religious imposters. And oh, church, may we hold fast to the gospel. It is our only hope, amen? It is this world's broken, this broken world's only hope. There is no other help and hope other than in Jesus. Will you stand this morning? What are you basing your assurance of salvation upon today? If you are trusting in anything or anyone other than Christ alone, then you will be let down and you will be disappointed. Oh, do not go from this place, from this message without admitting your sin, believing in Christ as your only hope and confessing your sin to him and confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is so clear. It is heavy and it is difficult. It is challenging, but this is where life is found that never ends. And so we rejoice in Jesus. Father, we desire above all things to never forget this warning and to be mindful and to watch and to beware of those who would come bringing a false message that does not save and it mixes together and poisons and perverts the true gospel. And Father, by your grace and the power of your spirit, we will encourage one another to hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until we die 
or until you return, for it is our only hope. He is our only hope, and Jesus is the hope for all the world. And we will preach and sing and proclaim this with your help. Use us as long as you give us breath. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.